0: now, I am not one for hyperbole for a number of reasons. First of which I can't spell the word. But typically you should never really speak in hyperbolic terms. But there are a couple of things that are deserved of that. First of all, Danny Moses, his picks in a league where they play for pay. We'll get into that later because it requires its own segment. But I'm gonna say this, Dan Nathan, and I wanna hear your thoughts on it. I think next week, given everything that's going on might be the most important week we've seen for the market in a decade.
1: Thoughts? There it is. We have a Fed meeting where no one's really expecting anything to change. We have a stock market that's down on the year. The S&P 500, as we speak, Thursday afternoon is down four and a quarter percent. The NASDAQ is down a little less than 8%. That is down on the year. And all the stuff that's going up is actually bad for the stock
2: market. Rates, crude, And the dollar, Danny Moses. 100%. And you know what is transitory? The bad claims that came out this week, that's transitory because that's Omicron related. So we're on the other side of that transitory nonsense. So yeah, the Fed meeting, it's going to happen next week. They're not raising next week. They're going to probably reiterate that they're going to finish the taper by March, right? So we're down to buying, I think, 30 billion now in February is what it's going to be. That's going to start to have an impact. And all the things you just said, how about funding the government? How about all the debt we're going to have? Fed was buying a large portion of the auctions that were going on. And we haven't even gotten to that part of the show. We'll get to that in February and March when that happens, but I agree with what guy said. We are building into a very explosive week next week. I expect volatility to remain elevated into that. And listen, you're seeing buying opportunities in certain names and certain things are being scooped up and then other stuff's being left for dead, and that's for good reason.
0: Well, in case you were wondering, you are listening to On the Tape, that was Danny Moses. Prior to that was the great Dan Nathan. I, of course, am Guy Adami, at least last I looked. And later, check this out. We're going to be joined by the great Melissa Lee, the host of CNBC's Fast Money, the show that is now celebrating its 15th one-five-year
2: anniversary. Danny Moses, I know you're an
0: ardent viewer of the show. Any care to opine
2: quickly? On the anniversary, I think it's fantastic. I'm not saying after a couple years I would have bet against you guys, but congratulations on it. It's getting better and better. You know why? Because you're getting more bearish and more bearish. And I think people out there watching TV like the honesty. And you guys bring it, all you guys, the show's decent, I must say. Now I... Have to watch it pretty much every day so I know what the hell we're going to be talking about during the week and what I can't talk about during on the show because it'll be redundant. So, no, I really enjoy you guys.
1: The other night we were on the show, and it was that big down day. I think the S&P was down 2%. The NASDAQ was down 3%. And you and I were on. I can't remember who else was on. And I was like, all right, well, there you go. We just got done with the A block. And I'm sure our Twitter's lighting up. You know how there's like, the fast money bros, they're all negative. And I was like, no, 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 we're not all negative today on the big down day. We've been talking about this stuff for weeks. And I think that's why you come here to on the tape and then a
2: little companion viewing on fast. People accuse me of making you guys more bearish. Is that the case? Do you think that I've brought out some of the great bearishness? And I say great, great bearishness that you guys have. Do you think I've helped bring that out?
0: No, I think you make us appear better looking as
1: (laughs) well. Yeah, but, you know, Guy, not one for hyperbole, as he just opened the show by saying. This is what's really interesting, Danny, about the show. So it's 15 this week. Guy is the only person who is on the show who's there in day one, and that is a truly remarkable occurrence. We're going to talk to Mel about that when we sit down with her a little bit later. We all kind of play different roles, if you will. I was always being the young guy or the last guy to the set I would go last in every conversation. So if everybody was saying the same thing, I'd take the other side of it. So I was kind of labeled the
2: contrarian. Is Fast Money, you think, the right name? If you could change the name of the show during the course of the show in the 15 years, there's been easy money, there's been fast money, there's slow money. How would you classify right now? I'm glad you brought that up.
0: So obviously, I did no say over the naming of the show. And this show, the discussions started early in 2006, but the name that I wanted, and to a certain extent, I think it would have resonated better especially today, is The Trader's Edge. And I thought that was a really cool show. They could have done some really cool graphics. But obviously, I think they like the name Money in a lot of their shows, which I get. And so Fast Money was it. And to a certain extent, it makes sense given the cadence of the show It's extraordinarily fast, but I think sometimes it gets mislabeled by people thinking it's just a way to make a quick buck.
1: I think of the name Fast Money, I think of more of a trading-oriented sort of situation where other shows on the network are very focused on, just look at the guests that they have on. They'll be long-only fund managers, or they'll have strategists who are giving year-end targets. What I really enjoy about it, growing up in the business as a trader at a hedge fund, long, short, looking both ways, is just thinking about what happened today where you took your lumps, where you had your gains and thinking about how you're going to make money tomorrow or the next day. So that's how I've always categorized it.
0: So we're going to walk down memory lane a little later, as I mentioned with Melissa, but in order to look forward in terms of earnings, sometimes you got to walk down memory lane as well. And I'm just going to walk briefly down memory lane, Danny, because I happen to think for a myriad of reasons that Procter & Gamble is one of the 10 most important companies out there in terms of the tell's that stock or that company can provide you with. And I know you have a lot of thoughts on Procter & Gamble and the earnings release that we just saw from them.
2: My only takeaway is that they're kind of at the center of the supply chain of logistics of everything. And their quote was, transportation and labor markets remain tight. Availability of materials remain stretched in some categories and in some markets. Inflationary pressures are broad based with little signs of near-term relief. That's from the CFO of Procter & Gamble during the earnings call. They're managing it well. I'm not even talking about the stock specifically, but that gives you a pretty good indication that, forget about the word transitory, and forget about how much of this is already embedded, but this is going to stay with us for a while. So if one of the largest CPG companies in the world gives you that, you got to pay attention to it. So like I said, I think the only thing transitory right now are unemployment claims. Right, but that wasn't unexpected. Think about this, and this is
1: going back to C-suite management 101 of investors, when you have these obvious things out there going on, you just lean into them. You got nothing to lose. And again, the stock market, the S&P 500 for the most part is down 5% from an all-time high with valuations very near 10-15 year high. So to me, I think we're going to hear a whole heck of a lot of that over the next few weeks.
0: By the way, I think it's important to mention Danny and I know you know this, but I'll mention it to the listeners that haven't seen it. Procter and Gamble very quietly made an all-time high this week on a pretty dicey week. Now, I find that interesting for a number of different reasons, not least of which valuation doesn't make a whole hell lot of a sense in Procter & Gamble in terms of where they trade on a PE basis and their earnings growth potential. But I think what people are looking for is stability. And oh, by the way, to whatever extent you want to give them credit for, visibility that they seem to have and a lot of people don't.
2: We talked a couple of weeks ago about what are companies going to say and will they be conservative? And to Dan's point, it doesn't pay to say things are getting better. But I do believe, Dan, there is a group of investors that were thinking maybe we'll get some type of insight that the ports are getting better. They didn't give you any of that. And I'm not saying they can be conservative as they want, but you didn't give anything to the bulls that want to believe that there's going to be some near-term pressures that are somewhat relieved within the supply chain. That's all I was pointing out there.
0: This is not a shameless plug, but CME is a presenting sponsor of On The Tape and we're thrilled to have them on board, but we're starting to use a lot of their tools in earnest. And the CME Fed Watch tool is something that we've really embraced. I know, Danny Moses, you have thoughts on this, but Dan Nathan, we're looking and the probability for a Fed rate hike in the March meeting at last I looked is either side of 90%. Obviously, it's somewhat fluid. Listen, two sides of the coin makes markets. And I know you and I have been different sides of this. I've been right. You've been right. It's going back and forth like a great ping pong match, which, by the way,
1: if you played me, I would
0: beat you just putting it out there. But what are your thoughts on the Fed and what's going on right now?
1: Guy and Danny, you guys have both been really focused on this two-year. As soon as the Fed signaled that they were going to end their quantitative easing, what did we start to see? We saw the two-year go from 20 basis points. It doubled, and then it's since doubled again, and it's up a bit more since that. And we were scratching our heads for a bit collectively. Why hasn't the 10-year even gotten back to where it was in March of 2021 when it really was going up for, I guess we would all agree, the right reasons at that point. We weren't thinking about variants, and we were thinking that maybe the economy was improving, and by the end of 2021, we were going to have some sort of normalization about monetary policy. Well, here we are now, and Guy, you've had a great call on the 10-year to 2%. It almost got there in the last couple of days. But the two-year front-running what the Fed is going to do with Fed funds, to me, we might have seen the peak, I would say, in rates. I don't think rates are going meaningfully higher. I got to tell you, in 2018 and 2019, the Fed funds got to about 2.5%. And that seems like that might be the generational high in Fed funds forever. Why? Because the Fed's balance sheet is now $9 trillion. And I don't believe they're ever going to get an opportunity to meaningfully roll things off.
0: I agree with you on that one, Danny. They've said they're going to try to reduce this balance sheet. There was a great DV Ray Vaughan album, Tightrope, if you recall the song. I know Danny Moses knows the songs. Well, they're walking the tightrope right now. The problem is they think they have a net, but they don't. And Danny, this is really interesting. I want you to take some time on this. People then subsequently ask, well, if the Fed is raising rates and it's clear that rates are going higher in the front end, why isn't the US dollar behaving better? And the answer that I give, and I'm curious to your thoughts, it's because it's a relative thing. And by the way, the rest of the world's caught up to this as well. Everybody
2: seems to be combating inflation right now, except maybe the Chinese. So there's two things that came out in the last week. And Bank of Japan and the ECB both said they're not really close to, quote, raising rates. So that kind of why I think you saw the dollar actually move higher the last few days. So it did make sense on that move. Backing up to the Fed for a second, I agree with Dan that around a 1% two-year, the market's pricing in three to four rate hikes already. And I'll say it again, the whole idea that they're not going to be reinvesting runoff and something like that I think is outrageous. I don't think that happens in 22. Take another step back. I do think they will finish taper. I do think there's a 97% probability in the markets so that they will raise in March. And again, in June, at least two hikes by that point, that probably does happen. But beyond that, I think we're going to see a slowdown. I think we're already seeing what the impact of potentially tighter financial markets might look like. We're getting glimpses. And why did the market rally this morning? It rallied on worse employment claims was the only reason I could say, yeah, there's some decent earnings out there. But for the most part, you're going to start to rally on that. You're rallying yourself into stagflation because if that's a actual thing that's going to start to trend and happen and the economy does start to slow, The Fed is really screwed. And, Guy, I got one for you. Ready? I love when you got things for me. Please. Because it's one of your favorite actors these days from Yellowstone. Oh. How about Yuri? You remember Yuri?
0: Yuri Gregorin, the great astronaut?
2: No way out. No way out. Dan got one, okay? Right now, that thing where you start to see the face, it's coming through. It's Powell on the face of that thing they're trying to find.
0: Oh, I love that. The picture that they found under the bed of Kevin Costner and Sean Young and Gene Hackman's in that movie. It's funny you mention that. You wonder what goes through actors' brains, right? Because obviously Kevin Costner was in that movie. I love that movie. It was filmed in Georgetown, by the way, to the extent that any of you care. But what I'll say is in Yellowstone, which is a tremendous series, I encourage you all to go and watch it. In season three, they introduced Jamie's father, who, by the way, appeared in the movie No Way Out. See the way I'm connecting dots here? Now, Danny Moses, I don't know about your thoughts on that, but I will tell you, I think Kevin Costner is one of those guys that tries to stay true to his buddies out there.
2: Yeah, Palaziri, and then you throw in this whole Russian conflict thing. Dan, you're not getting out of this room today without talking about gold. And you know what? Good for you for having the bullish call on GLD, whatever. Oh, you saw One it. of the 26 you shows that you're on during the week. Yeah. That was unbelievable, okay?
0: Before we get into gold and before we talk about Sean Young, who, by the way, I mean, there was a five-year window where Sean Young was absolutely killing it. Blade Runner? I'm just saying, no way out. I knew I would get a guy going, so. And you're doing a good job. By the way, again, I know a lot of you Yellowstone fans are out there listening to us right now. I happen to know for a fact that Kevin Costner has become a huge on-the-tape fan, but that's neither here nor there. I mentioned earnings next week because I do think, listen, earnings are important. I don't know where this expression came from, taken out to the woodshed. Maybe somebody can at me on Twitter, but tech stocks have been taken out to the proverbial woodshed. The question is, for names like Microsoft, not so much Apple, but some of these other names report next week, have they been woodshedded enough where an inline earnings release will get these stocks back on the horse, Dan Nathan.
1: All right. Well, listen, Microsoft was down 10% on the year. Not something that's happened to that stock in a very long time. They come out and they make an announcement that they're buying a gaming company for $70 billion in cash. I think this stock had a $2.4 trillion market cap at the time. The stock went down 2%. And now it's higher than where it was. So when you think about this company and what they're willing to do and how they're willing to flex into different markets here, they don't seem to be particularly worried. The only thing I'll just say is this, is that I think we've gotten really used to this idea that rates are really low, so we're just expanding the valuation bounds a little bit. I mean, Microsoft's a company that trades at about 33 times Fiscal 2022, okay, so the current year, 11 and a half times sales, expected to grow earnings, I don't know, mid-teens with revenue growth of about mid-teens or something like that. By traditional standards, that's really expensive for a stock like this, especially if you think about law of large numbers and this and that or whatever. So I don't find these companies so compelling on a valuation basis. You'd say the same thing about Apple, the largest equity on the planet. So I just think there's going to come a time, going to look back wait, we were willing to pay 30 times for Apple and Microsoft because they really can't grow into those valuations if you think about it.
0: Comes a time when you're drifting, and there comes a time when you settle down for you Neil Young fans out there. And by the way, I know Danny doesn't care about this, neither does Dan, but I grew up on Neil Young, and I will tell you, as I've said a thousand times, until you've heard Powderfinger Live, Neil Young and Crazy Horse You haven't lived. I know you are Grateful Dead and Fish and blah, blah, blah. Journey and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and whatever other bands you like. But that, to me, is the pinnacle. So, Danny Moses, I ask you. Hey, hey, my, my. Yeah, what do you got? Oh, please. I'm begging you. Don't do that. I'm just saying... Earnings next week. I know you're laser focused on this stuff because earnings matter. I guess my question is the same one I asked Dan: Have these names been taken out to the woodshed enough where an inline release
2: will get them back on the horse, or is that horse left the barn? Well, some of these names are just flight to quality, and if you're going to keep your money in the stock market, we talked about Procter and Gamble before, and let me just say something else on that's a two percent dividend yield. No, it's not high, but it's not small. We talked about what people are going to look to own in this type of sell-off, and. These are the new, if you want to call them, C P G companies. I'll throw Apple as a CPG company. I'll throw Microsoft as a safe company. Microsoft has proven, I think, for the most part, Dan, correct if I'm wrong, their acquisitions, they've been able to integrate these things pretty strongly. So people know there'll be something creative and or they're moving into a higher growth area, whether the video games coming into the metaverse, whatever they're doing, they're showing that they're going to be on the offense. And people like to see that. So I haven't looked at the full earnings slate for next week, but quality is going to rise to the top for sure. So if you put up a good number and you have a good balance sheet, you pay a dividend and you're buying back stock and you make money, that's where you want to be in this market.
1: Yeah, well, here's the thing about Apple, okay? We're expecting low single-digit earnings and sales growth for the current fiscal year. Again, it's changed about 30 times here. We know that this is not a software SaaS company with gross margins about 80% or so. They generate a shit ton of cash, and they buy back a shit ton of cash. But this stock at the start of October was trading at $140, and it just traded north of 180 So it's down about 8.5%. It's trading 166 or so here. Guy, I know that you think that breakout level back in the high 150s makes a whole heck of a lot of sense from a technical standpoint. But I guess the point is, if it's just a flight to quality, if it's just a beneficiary of passive fund flows and you can justify 30 times, well, then fine. It's 9% of the S&P. It's 15% of the NASDAQ 100. But make no mistake about it. This stock can sell off. In Q1 of 2021, just a year ago, it sold off 20%
2: on a 13% decline in the NASDAQ. One other thing on that. We talked about this last week. The more that other stocks sell off, the more, by definition, portfolio managers own as a percentage of these names. And Dan, not only are they expensive, I agree, and that's not always a great short thesis because something expensive, but now they're much bigger as a part of their portfolio. The longer that these things have relative outperformance, and that becomes an issue. So if people take their gross down and start to raise cash, these are the natural things that they will sell. So I'm just saying, I don't think there's upside to these names, but is it a safe place to park your money if you want to stay in the market?
1: There's a day in the next week or two where Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, probably NVIDIA, probably Tesla are all down 5% in the same time. So you tell me, Guy, what happens to the broad market there? We know that the NASDAQ is down about 10% right now. If that happens, and I don't mean to sound so certain about it, but Guy, we've had a 10% decline in the NASDAQ, and we have not had a day like that where the leadership is leading to the downside.
0: Which is why next week, I think, is so important. And it's interesting, we're 20 minutes in. What was that really shitty movie with the kid from the movie Rudy, little short guy, he's running around with no shoes on?
1: Lord of the Rings.
0: Lord of the Rings. There were like nine of those movies. They are all exactly the same. I don't know why I brought it up. Now I'm going to get myself. But Danny Moses, you're precious, is Tesla. And the fact that we're 20 <laughs> minutes in and we're just mentioning it now is remarkable because Tesla reports on Wednesday. So does it even matter at this point what they report?
2: Guy, as it relates to Tesla reporting next week, we already get the delivery numbers every quarter. We kind of know what the production numbers are. We'll get an update on when the truck will or won't be made, and it'll go on. I don't think there's anything you could tell me that they can do on that quarter that could justify the valuation here because it doesn't trade on valuation. still a meme stock, and that's what it is to me. And I said from the very beginning of this sell-off, and even into last year when I thought the market would begin to sell off, I will not believe that we are through the sell-off period until Tesla leads us down. Whether it happens or not, I don't know. But it's too big relative to the other automakers. It's too big (laughs) relative to the other top 10 names in the S&P for what I believe it is. And it's facing issues at every part of their business. And you can at me all you want. I'll never relent on that, Dan. So, Guy, you know, one thing that's interesting, you just started talking about the Lord of the Rings and the
1: precious, and Tesla is Danny's precious, no doubt about it. But Amazon just announced, you know, they have the studio where they have the TV shows or whatever, they just announced the name of a hotly anticipated series that they are going to have. It's called the Lord of the Rings, Power of the Ring.
0: When did we become a society that has no imagination, that basically is just reliant upon old things just rehashing old shit. It makes me crazy.
1: Is there no... Wait, wait. Guys, just think about how meta that was. You just said, when did we become the society of old things rehashing old things? This is what you do all week. You are an old thing rehashing things about the market all week. I don't even know what meta means. You've said that
0: to me before a hundred times. I just lost over because I don't understand it. If I am meta, then we are all screwed, by the way. Speaking of things that are screwed, look at that segue, Danny Moses. Go with this one fixed income ETFs are being exposed. Now, I don't want to make people's eyes glaze over. So, Danny, I'm begging you not to do it. But it's important because there's a duration thing going on here that maybe now the market is starting to understand. And maybe we're in more trouble than people seem to think we are.
2: It normally takes a couple months because most of these are held by retail investors. And they don't look at their fixed income ETFs on a daily basis, even a weekly basis. They get it monthly in their statements. They're going to look and see that some of these fixed income ETFs are starting to get hit. And you would expect flows to come out as the Fed is raising and the yields are going higher. People aren't going to be parking their money in a losing asset potentially. But I think that has potential ramifications. And talked about this before. If you have bank loans in there or fixed income properties, those are meant to be owned for 10, 15, 20 years. You're trading in and out of daily liquidity. So I believe there is a structural issue. It's not illegal. I think it's just a duration mismatch of people looking to get exposure into fixed income and not holding it for a long period of time. So if they're going to start to come out of these things, it will exacerbate. I think you are seeing the impact of some of those flows on yields right now, the same way they were going on the way in, the same way people want to front-run the Fed when they're buying assets, I think they're front-running Fed on the way out. And I think it's exacerbating some of these moves in yield. So I haven't seen a lot of stuff on it yet, but I believe in the coming weeks, we'll start to see a little more about fixed income ETFs, some issues at some of those, and we'll see what happens, especially bank loan ETFs.
0: Yeah. And listen, if you've learned anything over the last year that we've been doing this together is when Danny's spidey senses peak up, you better listen because he's typically right. Now, my spidey senses suck. But they should have peaked up because when Dan Nathan went out and bought the Peloton treadmill, literally, I think, to the minute, that was the top in terms of Peloton stock. And you talk about how the mighty have fallen. Well, it happened this week in Peloton because I think maybe I'm wrong. Again, don't at me. But I think it traded below their IPO price which is amazing if you think about the round
1: turn this stock has done over the last couple of years. Well, it's trading 23.25 at its lows today. It's under $25 as we speak. The IPO price back in September of 2019 was 29 bucks. They sold 40 million shares there. Here's the thing, Guy, the one thing, I think Danny brought this up in our chat earlier, they also sold nearly 24 million shares in November, this past November, at 46 bucks. So here we are around 25. I will tell you that I did buy that treadmill, but I also returned it when they allowed for Do you know this, Danny? They did a major recall. Yeah, I know about that. Yeah, of course. I think I returned it when I was 100 bucks.
2: Yeah, I give Peloton credit for actually taking in and recalls, giving money back and replacing, but let me just compare it to Tesla for a second. So I tweeted on November 5th, and I said, advice for Peloton, because this was the first crack in the armor was when that happened in early November. Advice for Peloton. Start taking deposits on autonomous bikes that will never exist. Talk about the bike's ability to power your home. Ignore product recalls from the U.S. government. Sell bikes to Hertz so they can rent them out. Find option market makers willing to buy calls. See Tesla. That was on November 5th. And so when they raised money on November, I think it was 16th or something like that. I think the stock at that point was 70 on its way to 50. They raised the capital at 46. And look what's happened since then. They have a buy now, pay later aspect to them. Do you remember when they announced the deal with a firm a buy now, pay later? When I saw that, I started to think, okay, is there market really people that are going to buy Pelotons on layaway? That was a little scary to me at the time. I'm not shorted. I haven't been short it. Congrats to all the people out there that have been vocal and shorted. But by the way, when meme stocks break, this is exactly what happens. And Dan, you've been all over these stay-at-home stocks, Niedermeyer, dead, everything's dead. This has it all, right? The company's never made money, has a trendy product. I'm not saying it's a bad product. It's good. But now what do you do with the stock? Now what is it? They're stopping production. What do you do? I do think it's pretty remarkable how many consumer companies that you know
1: in five years have gone from zero in revenue to $4 billion annually. I'm just saying that's like a legit story, and they do have a great product. I think where the story went a bit haywire is the valuation that was being assigned to the recurring revenue model – of, oh, you don't have to buy our expensive hardware. You can just pay 30 bucks a month for our classes and stuff like that. This is a product where there's a huge disconnect between the valuation on the upside. People love the product. Look at the ratings on the product and stuff like that. But it was really, the company was guiding towards what they thought the potential for this non-hardware product revenue was, what the margins were, and their ability to
2: keep those customers. So that's really where the disconnect was. You just described a lot of the dot-coms name in 2000. A lot of them had revenue, but they were never profitable. They were bought on the belief that they this thing would emerge. It would eventually grow its way in. AMC has revenue. These are meme stocks. If you took a fresh look, and I always tell people, underwrite the stock at $30, 28 26 24 at what point does it become compelling? And the answer is not at all on Peloton. Now, maybe you get to a point where there's a recurring revenue, there's a service aspect of the business. That was the bull case. That was the path to profitability. You're right. And I get it. And if you get to a point where you can actually either separate that out as you're looking at the model, whatever. But I think this will be one of the things we look back five years from now and say, what happened in 22? 21 and 22 to the markets, this will be one of the many names, I think, that never deserved to be where it was. All
1: right. Well, you obviously follow me on Twitter, Danny, because about a couple hours ago, I tweeted a chart since existence from Peloton. I said, when people ask what the tech bubble in the 90s and its subsequent pop in the 2000s was like, well, it was like this, but by the hundreds. I know I was there, man. I had a front row seat for it, just like you, buddy. There sounds to be a little animus here, sort of lighten the mood here. I
0: heard somebody say about You Don't Bring Me. It made me think of the great Neil Diamond singer songwriter. In 1978, he released a song with Barbara Streisand You Don't Bring Me Flowers. Danny, do you want to sort of hum a few bars? You don't bring me flowers. You don't sing me love songs. It's outstanding. And I bring that up because. You know who's not bringing you flowers anymore? That cat, Adam Aaron, who's been selling stock as fast as he can. AMC traded with an 18 handle this week. And oh, by the way, GameStop almost broke triple digits for the first time on the downside. That's after they, by the way, released that news a couple weeks ago about them getting into NFTs or whatever nonsense that they put out. And the stock, I think, traded up north of 150. Well, that round turned as well.
2: What does that mean, Danny Moses? It's bad. And guy, I'll give you credit. So a couple of weeks ago, we were in here. We were talking about GameStop and AMC on the eve of our podcast. That ridiculous news broke that sent GameStop stock up from one thirty. I think at some point in the pre-market or post-market it was one sixty five. Once some asinine thing you got added on Twitter. I didn't, although I was certainly partners with you in that we don't gloat when we're right. If we're wrong, we're wrong. If we're right, you're right. You'll never see victory laps taken. You're good with that. Dan's good with that, I think. Dan, I haven't looked at all your Twitter. I'm definitely good with that. But here we are. So, what is the point? Where is this stock going? What is the level where you buy it? You suck people in. You've now lost an entire group of an investor base that gets burnt during that kind of run right there and left for dead. And so, you're asking me where these stocks are going. I think AMC is going to go to 10, and I think GameStop's going to go back to its original level, where was it, a year and two years ago, 50 bucks, 60 bucks?
1: Real quickly, though, guys, so our friend, Jim Chanos of Kineco's, We like to support our friends, right? So Melissa had this great documentary, and she's been covering this meme stock thing for a while, and she did a doc a few months ago called How the AMC Apes Cracked Wall Street, and it just went onto Peacock, and she tweeted it out, and I retweeted it. And then Jim, you guys all know Jim, at Wall Street Cynic, he comes over the top, he goes, Adam Aaron and his fellow AMC executives certainly used the apes for something. And then he posted all of the, the insiders selling, and he's just so matter of fact, he's so good. I mean, he literally is laser-focused
2: on the stuff. He blocks the noise out, Dan, He blocks point. the noise.
1: It just gets right to it. And I will tell you this as well. He was
0: trying to short DraftKings a year ago when everybody was touting it was the next great stock. Look what DraftKings has done well. Now, you, Danny, you just said something that's not entirely true. Actually, it's not going to be entirely true in about 30 seconds, the gloating part, because finally, it appears at least that that the thing that you and I both love is
2: getting off the mat and rearing its ugly yellow head. Danny Moses. I love gold. Look at Dan. Dan's rolling his eyes. He hates to even pretend to be bullish on gold. That's fine. He'll borrow a bullish trade for a while on gold. But think about this. What are the environments that gold should work in? Forget the Bitcoin ever existed. Can we just forget about crypto for a second? A lot of people who own it right now want to forget it ever existed. Gold should work in a hyperinflation market. Gold should work in a deflationary market. Gold should work on geopolitical concerns that are out there. We have a little bit of everything. So what will make the stock market go up from here? The only thing that'll make the stock market, one of the few things that will make it, if the Fed blinks and if you get an indication that they're going to take their foot off the pedal a little bit, what does that mean? That means that you're seeing signs of the economy slowing to me that means gold goes up. What if the Fed doesn't stop because inflation is running? That to me says gold is going to be a store of value potentially.
0: I believe it was Salvatore Corsito, if memory serves, that played Bonacera in The Godfather. I mentioned that because the first words you hear in the movie are spoken by Bonacera, and they are, I believe in America. Well, I believe in America. I believe in both of you. But more than anything, I believe in Danny Moses' ability to pick NFL games at a pace that we have never seen before. So on this second week of the playoffs, Danny Moses, in a league where they play for pay, I want you to take the microphone and tell the listening audience, and Dan Nathan as well
2: for that matter, who you like this week. So let's get squared away. Dan is down nine dimes at this point, okay? We're going to work out a plan, Dan. It's all good. Last week, I picked two games. I hit them both, thankfully. The 49ers looked really good, obviously. The Bengals held on. Raiders put up much better fight than it would, but I got those right. The other games were pretty predictable, right, that went on. The one team that I think is just being overlooked right now are the Rams. The Rams finally have gotten it together. Their injuries are now gone. They're at full strength now. Von Miller has worked his way into that defense. That is a formidable defensive line, a formidable offense now. And Odell Beckham Jr., who I don't like at all, all of a sudden, He's come on to play. You know what that does for the rest of the receiving core out there? So I like the Rams here, and I always swear I will never bet against Tom Brady. I've done it a few times in my life. I've won a couple times, but most of the time I lose. But why the Buccaneers are favored by three over the Rams, I don't know. And I think the Rams are a live dog, as we say, guy. And let me just tell you who the Bucs have beaten in the last several weeks, okay? They beat the Eagles. Eagles played horribly, okay? And the Bucs had injuries in that game. They beat Carolina twice. They beat the Jets they lost to the Saints 9 nothing, and they did have a gutty win over the Bills, who played horrible for most of the game, came on strong, and held on in overtime to win that game. So I like the Rams here getting three against the Buccaneers. And Dan, before you tell me, the three other games that are kind of out there, Titans minus three and a half over the Bengals, that's a tough one. Not going to take that one. Packers minus five and a half over the Niners. If it wasn't for the bye week the Packers had, that line would probably be two to three. I'm staying away from that. And Chiefs, two over the Bills. I'll just say this. I'm not betting that game, but I think the Bills have a chance to win the Super Bowl. I think Guy's going to agree on that. But I'm staying away from those three. My pick is the Rams plus three in Tampa. Dan? I'll take Tampa minus three for a dime. A dime? It's only like three games left. You think I got to step it up? No, I'm just saying. That's fine. You can do it for a dime.
0: That's not fair,
1: Danny. You're trying to get him to chase. I see what you're doing. All right. Guy, you should really see the way he's looking at me across the table right here. Oh, man. And just so you guys know, I spent the weekend with Danny down in Miami last weekend, and he didn't only get those two games right. He was getting a lot of stuff right. He was getting halftime lines right. He was doing a
2: lot of stuff here. So you guys aren't even getting all the good stuff here, just so you know. I mean, 27-4 and is pretty good. Like I keep saying, it will end at some point. And by the way, for everyone out there, when they start to lose like two or three in a row, go against me continuously on this. You may get out of the season. I might get out of the season. I think the Rams might win the Super Bowl at this point. That's how good I think they are.
1: That would be very interesting if the Rams got to SoFi Stadium. last year, Tampa won in their home stadium. Exactly.
2: So we'll see what happens.
1: Look, I will tell
0: you, I think, Danny, you know this. I thought the Super Bowl this year would be the Colts. They didn't even make the playoffs. I don't know what happened there, but I thought the Rams would be on the other side, and I'm going to stand by that. I'm with you on that. And that defense is ridiculous. Look what they did to Arizona. That was embarrassing. That looked like a bad high school game. So the Rams are legit, for sure. And the fact that Odell is actually playing like the Odell's rookie year or second year with the Giants is really interesting. We'll see what happens there. And Dan Nathan, I got to tell you, there was a scene in The Gambler with the great James Kahn when James Kahn said, I'm scorching. Well, Danny Moses, you are absolutely scorching, and you've been scorching
2: for literally the last 20 weeks. You're the best. Let me just say this. The way that Cam Akers looked coming back from injury last week in the backfield for the Rams, and the way that Cooper Cup was the second receiver last week, I mean, they are loaded. Week three... The Rams beat the Buccaneers 34-24. to Granted, it was at home. I think they do it again to them on the road, so we'll see what happens. When we come
0: back, we're going to be joined by the host of CNBC's Fast Money, our friend, Melissa Lee. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. In March of 2009, my life was profoundly changed. And it was changed on the back of our following guest. Melissa Lee took over for Dylan Radigan, who had hosted the show for two years. And this is not an easy show to host. To the extent that you watch Fast Money, I think you can figure out that being the host of the show requires an inordinate amount of skills, not least of which the ability to sort of corral for unruly at times, mostly men, high testosterone, except for me, highly intelligent people. (laughs) in a coherent, cogent, and timely fashion. And I got to tell you something. I thought Dylan was great at it, but when you came in, Mel, you completely flipped the script. You took that show to levels that I never thought we would get. So I'm thrilled that you're here to celebrate the 15-year anniversary of CNBC's Fast Money.
3: I am honored to celebrate with you two who have each profoundly changed my life also.
0: Well, Dan, in great ways, me, not so much, because if I had a nickel, as they say, for every time you've rolled your eyes, I would be like BK, a Bitcoin baller right now.
3: You'd be a nickel baller, but that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Too many times to count.
0: (laughs) It's been great. I mean, listen, and I say that sincerely, Mel, there are a handful of people, I think, maybe less than that, that could have come in and done the work that you did literally on the drop of a dime because things changed very quickly in 09. But again, not an easy show, not an easy time during the markets, but you picked it up like you'd been doing it your entire life. And it was completely counter to I think the way you were trained as a journalist.
3: I think that I was forced to be on set to be unscripted, which I was not used to, uh, to give a little bit of opinion, to show my personality, which I wasn't used to either and to just sort of go with the flow. And that's no other show on CNBC. At the time, I had filled in on so many other shows, but no other show gives you that kind of training. That's how unique this show is and had been.
0: Yeah, and it's, you know, you say, when I say drop of a dime, that's literally what it was because I think you got word that you were going to be hosting. You had filled in as a Fast Money host throughout, I want to say, obviously, 2009 was early on, but all through 2008, you'd be on and off when Dylan was doing whatever Dylan was doing. But I think you got the word that, hey, things have changed. You were hosting Closing Bell, which at the time was a three to five show. And they told you, you know, get on a subway and get up to the NASDAQ because you're hosting Fast Money, sister.
3: Basically, I mean, I I got word via, I think it was email that Dylan was not going to be hosting. I didn't know what the circumstances were at that moment. And I needed to get to the NASDAQ right after the three o'clock hour. And so, whether it be by what, you know, taxi or subway. So I was like, I'm going to take the subway because that's the fastest. I was really nervous, and I couldn't even look at the rundown because in those days the rundowns were locked to only the show staff, and I wasn't officially show staff yet, so I couldn't look at the rundown in advance either. And then I'd spent 20 minutes on the subway getting there, and <laughs> had no idea what I was going to be talking about in about a half an hour, and no idea that from that day on. I would be hosting the show.
0: So Mel, I mean, obviously we knew each other and I've told the story before, but the first time in my recollection that we met was at, I want to say it was a New York public library, but it might've been the Met, it was some CNBC event. You were hanging out drinking brown water with Mary Thompson, who, by the way, we should get Mary on this podcast because she is hysterical. But we were chatting that night and little did I know that, you know, literally 15 years later, 16 years probably when it started, that we'd be as close of friends we are and I say that sincerely you know I consider you not an older sister I mean you're older in maturity level but my younger sister in a lot of ways
3: I feel the same way I mean you guys the whole team you guys in particular are like family I mean you guys I know I can depend on you as for that first encounter guy I vaguely recall that but I remember it as you being standoffish
0: <laughs> no, now, all right, for, we'll go down that road if you want but I'm not standoffish by any stretch I get you know I'm not one of these people that fa- you know falls in love with my friends immediately it takes me I time know. to warm up Dan Nathan can speak to that Dan will tell you I'll use the word he thought I was a complete asshole the first time he came on Fast Money we've told the story before but I'm sure Dan's going to get into it again
1: because I guarantee he probably said to you after the show I'm never coming on this show again you heard this story I mean I had known Mel because I had met her when we were screen testing for Options Action which right out of the gate she was going to be the host of and I think we met in probably late 2008 and this was in the throes of the financial crisis and again while no one knew how long that was going to last it was certainly guy wouldn't you agree the probably the most violent period in financial markets in our career and even in the in this pandemic that we just had in February March April of 2020 What was going on then felt so much worse. And I've often heard you talk about the responsibility that you and that original team felt by going on that set and really talking to a lot of viewers who never watched CNBC. But because it was a financial crisis, that was the place to be. And I think what's interesting about this pandemic that we just had is that a lot of people who were exposed to markets or were worried about their jobs, they were watching probably broader news organizations that were focused more on the health conditions. And that's what I think is really unique unique about this but going back to you being a dick guy um so wait, 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 uh, well, are you allowed well, to say that yeah, i mean it's do our we podcast. get like sanctioned for <laughs> it, it, saying guy, that guy just just as you recall it's our podcast we can say whatever oh. the heck we want so the point was i met mel and we were doing options action and i started doing it in april of 09 and she was a pro and to your point mel that show was not particularly free form it was well scripted and so I was just amazed watching you. You were like a different person on Fast Money. You had to corral. It was like kind of herding cats. You had to kind of slow people down. You had to kind of move people around. And it was a lot of fun. But I went on that show once. It was May of 09. And you were the only one who looked up at me. And you said, hey, Dan, how are you? Good luck. Guy didn't look up. Nobody else looked up. And I walked off that set. And I said, I'm never doing that show ever again. And it wasn't (laughs) until John Malloy, who knew I was a big Grateful Dead fan, called me in April of 2011. He said, listen, I know you don't like doing the show or you haven't done it in two years. He goes, but I have Bob Weir of The Grateful Dead on tonight. Will you come on and be on the show? And I've been doing it ever since then. And Mel, you've been amazing to me. You have been like a, a big sister as it comes to um, just professionalism, but a little sister as far as heart.
3: Oh, I consider you guys just family, older brother, younger brother, depending <laughs> on the situation, <laughs> depending on the metric. <laughs>
1: depending on the metric. Well,
0: I'm always age-wise, I'll always be the older brother, but I exactly. know what's what's so much fun for me is I play the role of like this little kid, sophomoric stuff, and I throw stuff at you like, you know, Mel, the Rangers played last night. Did you think Shesterkin was on his game or do you think he could have been a little bit better knowing full well you're in on the gag? And you'll say, no, I thought he was on his game. And I love those running gags so much. Now maybe only 5 people in the listening or viewing audience get it, but to me that's one of the, that's one of the most enjoyable aspects of the show.
3: Well, I think what makes the show tick is this sort of camaraderie, this long sort of institutional history, memory that we all have together of jokes, of stories, of financial events, things that we've gone through together as a group. It's all about ensemble casting. And, you know, I'll say this, and I'm sure there are going to be people out there who will scoff at this, but I sort of liken it to friends and the casting there. There's something magic about that group of people. And without Phoebe or Joey or whoever you want to pick as a character, it wouldn't quite be the same. And it was the chemistry, you know, amongst that group. And I I feel the same way for Fast Money. That's why you don't see too many new traders join. It's difficult because they have to click We like new voices, we like different voices, we like different perspectives, but ultimately we want people who we would want to hang out with, and that's a small club which we are privileged to be in.
0: No, it is a privilege to be in it, and I think it's resonated with the audience, and we're going to have some audience questions in a couple minutes that we did not prep you with. This is going to be Mel Unscripted, which I totally dig because that's really outside of your comfort zone, which is just a phrase that makes me break out in hives. But I'll say this, you know, in terms of resonating with the audience, the audience, I think, feels like they're part of something. And this is a word that I hate to use because it's going to come off the wrong way, but it's aspirational, not that they want to be any of us in particular, But they'd love to hang out with us. And you can speak to this, Mel. You've seen dozens of times people come watch the show, their ability to take pictures and meet everybody. They all gravitate to you saying, what an amazing job. They all want to take pictures with you. How interesting has that been for you, being the most probably recognizable person on the show.
3: Well, I think that you are really the most recognizable person on the show, Guy, because you are the one who often, when we were all together in the NASDAQ, you would regularly shepherd in people straight off the street who were just you know, pressing their nose against the window, we would be like, oh, this must be guy's friend. You are like, no, I just met him two minutes ago downstairs when I was going across the street to get gum. And that happened all the time. There's something about being in people's living room and they know us and they like us. And that's why they watch for the information, of course. But if you can make it fun at the same time, then why the hell not? And I think that's what
1: we've provided. Yeah. Well, Mel, speak for yourself. They like us. Max Myers, the longtime producer of the show and good friend of all of ours, he once said to me, he called me up one day, it's like five or six years ago. He said, I got some good news and I got some bad news. Either way, you're going to enjoy it. He's like, we just did some focus groups on all the panelists on Fast Money. And he said, the good news is, you know, you're still doing the show. The bad news is that you are literally the most disliked person of all the panelists on the show and he goes but it's also good because we need people that they love the viewers and we need people that they hate and in the middle you just don't want to be here so it's good that we have the person most loved on the show that would be you guy and then the person most hated and then mel i gotta tell you you know this you see it on twitter i hear it from people who come up to me the first question always about our show is about melissa lee and i really do believe guy that a inordinate amount of the people who watch the show watch because of her.
0: I agree with that 100%. And as I said, as I started this, there are literally a handful of people, and it's probably less than that, that have could come in and done this show as seamlessly as you had, Mel, but then have grown with it. Because you know if you think about it, this show has grown over the years. It's evolved. It's had to because the markets have evolved. And think about what's happened to us the last couple of years. We've all had to learn to do this show remotely. There have been a lot of twists and turns along the way. But I'll ask you this question cuz you know I get this a lot as well. How much of a responsibility do you feel you have hosting this show because words have meaning and you know we might look like we're goofing around at times but I think we all collectively take the show extraordinarily seriously.
3: I think we all have the sense that we have a tremendous responsibility in how we talk about issues and how we talk about stocks because people are tuning in to listen to what you guys have to say, and then deciding what to do with their money afterward. And we are cognizant of that. When Fast Money was created, it sort of flipped the script a little bit. It was a brand new show. It came after Mad Money with Jim Creamer. You know, Jim absolutely trailblazed in terms of the, this kind of show format. And we took it to a different level in terms of having four professional traders talk about what they do. But at the same time, we knew over time that that the beauty of that is that you have retail investors who want to know what the professionals are doing. And so we need to talk to them. And so we have to think about how we talk to them, the tones we use, the, the language that we use. We can move stocks in the aftermarket session, and we are all aware of that. So there's tremendous responsibility with what we do. Absolutely. I've always
0: felt that as well. And, you know, Karen put out a tweet earlier this week talking about her 15, one, five years on the show. And effectively, in my mind, she's an original without question. And she said how she never thought she'd be on television, but, you know, how much she's come to love the people on the show. And I think, look, I know you feel the same way, but my question to you is how important for you, I mean, we're a bunch of meatheads by and large, but how important is to have somebody like Karen that, you know, You guys are literally extraordinarily close. I think you are like sisters. You have a sister. She has a couple sisters. But in a lot of ways, you've become sisters. Speak to that relationship.
3: I think for me, it was very important. You know, When I first joined this show and and was made the permanent anchor, Karen was one of the first traders to reach out to me. And we went out and had drinks. And I was so nervous because Karen is so smart that it's to the point where it's intimidating if you don't know her well and you don't realize that she's really the most down to earth, sweetest, nicest, most generous person on the face of the planet. Um, and I came to realize that, but I was nervous going in. (laughs) I hope she listens to this. I don't know if I ever told her that, (laughs) but she has really helped me along the way. She has been a role model in terms of having a career and being a mother. She has been a role model in terms of, you know, being a woman operating in a, in a man's world, um, I saw through her that you can still be a woman and uh, you know, that, that is an asset. You don't have to be one of the guys. You can be one of the guys when you want to. And it fits your personality, but you don't have to.
1: You know, you know, what's funny, Mel, and I don't know if I've ever said this to you guys, but I actually did not like the show when it first started. I, I, you know, I liked Dylan and I liked his 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 brand, but it literally was like, you know, it looked like a basketball team, a bizarro basketball team. And, and and you know, and it was just, I just didn't dig it. And, you know, I was, um, you know, actively trading at the time and, and I had grown up in the business on trading desks. And I was like, that's not a trading desk that I wanted to work on. I mean that very really seriously. And I'm not, I'm just saying, So when you started doing the show and there was just more diversity of the sorts of people that were on there and it wasn't just like locker room stuff, and I don't mean like locker room talk, Um, that's when I really started to appreciate it. And so to me, I think you just kind of changed the game on that one. And I got to say, shout out to Guy. You changed a lot. And not only that, you just feel this weight, this responsibility. Um, You are a steward of this brand. You were the first guy. You were the only guy left who was on that original group and you've really changed with the group. You've been so welcoming. I, I got to say, something happened to you over the years because uh, you've been really welcoming to all the people, all the guests, you know what I mean, that have come on. And the rapport that you and Mel have, the show would not be the same. It, the show is not the same when you're not on Guy, just so you know.
0: Well, I appreciate i I like to think that I've been the same person, but I understand what you're saying. And I think it's important. Like, I do feel that responsibility. And you know, when people come up to us, I think we all do a great job of this. Their time is is as important as our time. So when people take time out of their day to come say hi, there's a responsibility to engage and to, to say thank you and to have a humility about it. Because once you forget that, it's over. And I'm always amazed at how impactful this show's been on people. And as you said earlier, Mel's got such a big part. You are the quintessential part of that. And you, you, know, you talked about sort of it being a bro fest. When in the early days of Fast Money, it was five really big dudes, and it did resemble sort of an NFL locker room without question. But again, we evolved, I think, and we've evolved uh, hopefully for the better, and hopefully I have as well. So we have a couple of audience questions, but just before we get to the melt, and, and one of the questions is probably going to be on this topic, but the last couple of years have been challenging for everyone. But think about this. You have two very young kids at home. You're managing this career. I mean, I'm curious as to how you've been able to deal with that literally for the last two years. It has to be difficult.
3: I think like anybody else, you just take it one day at a time. And thankfully, I have a job which I absolutely love. I I can't imagine trying to balance all of that with a job that you don't like or you're not engaged with. But I'm fortunate that even for 13 years, 13 years later, I am still just as engaged with the show. and, And I'm a believer in what the show can still be. We're not done evolving. We will continue to evolve. That's the only way that we can go forward for another, you know, I'm, I'm going to say 15 guy. I don't know if he'll be around. but I'll say- Well,
0: you know, I'll be in my late 90s by then. I mean, the clock is ticking on me without question. I mean, I'm on the wrong side of middle age. But listen, that's neither here nor there. We got some audience questions, Mel, and I'm going to start. And I know Dan has a couple as well. This comes from one of the producers of Fast Money. What is the hardest part of being on television every day? By the way, excellent show, crack staff back in EC, Mel.
3: Well, first of all, we do have an absolute crack staff in Anglewood, (laughs) Cliffs. They are clever, they are also engaged, and they love the show with a passion. So thank you to the staff who I know are listening to this podcast. I think the hardest thing is to always think about a new storyline for the markets and to make it just as engaging as the day before. You know, you might walk off and, you know, the S&Ps close and it's virtually unch. And so you think to yourself, what do you do on a day (laughs) when the markets are unchanged? you got to find that interesting story because there's always something good out there. And I think that's the challenge. I love, I sort of love those days because it gives you sort of the freedom to be creative about what you do, to do topics or single stock stories that you might not otherwise. I mean, how many times can we talk about the Fed and rising rates? I love those stories too, but three days in a row, four days in a row, that's enough. So, you know, I think that's the hardest to always try and find something new and different that will be engaging for the audience
1: all right mel here's one Um, what's the hardest and most exhausting thing between having multiple markets and turmoil shows or raising twins and i'm coming to you that's not from me i am a twin you know my mother has two sets of twins karen so that's a good question you know we got a little twin thing going here
3: (laughs) i think that it is harder being a mom of twins.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right answer.
3: And even on the days when I'm doing Squawk Box, a show in the middle of the day and a show at the end of the day, at least on the days like that, I just focus on work. Most other days, you're trying to balance everything else. And so it's always difficult. And moms out there will understand. You always feel guilty because you always think you could spend more time with your kids instead of your career and how selfish you're being. But I think that's that's a struggle.
0: This is from Cassius Cuvay, who you know, and by the way, he's going to be on our show in a couple of weeks. And this is an interesting question. When did Fast Money decide to become the most fun and entertaining show in finance? Was it like that from the beginning or did it sort of develop over time? So let me quickly answer this. One of the first things I said when we were talking about this show late 2005 and early 2006 is you want to make this a show that people turn the volume up for and you want to make it fun and accessible for people. So I've never thought we were splitting the atom. God knows I'm not that smart in the first place. But you want it to be a fun show. Being fun and being entertaining doesn't necessarily mean you're not being smart. They're not mutually exclusive. And Mel, I think you realized that really early on.
3: You had to. I think when you take yourself too seriously, that's when all fun gets sucked out of the room and and you hear the TVs turning off across the country. If you're not having fun, I feel like if I'm not having fun and I'm not engaged, then nobody else is. So why not make it fun? Because we're going to deliver the information too and i do think that from the inception you know you have a 5 o'clock show there's no real reason To tune on Fast Money. It's not an opening bell show. It's not pre-market. It's not right at the close of of trading. It's five o'clock when you could be doing loads of other things in your own personal life. And yet people decide to tune into Fast Money. And so you got to give them a reason. And that reason has got to be entertainment plus information.
1: All right. Here's one. And we can kind of narrow it down to present company. But this is from Robert Smith. He says, was there ever a time when you actually got mad at a desk or panelist? How did you handle it?
3: I think that the only time that I really got mad was when somebody brought back the guest. And I actually don't think that you, that either of you have done that. I feel like it's for those playing a little our little home
0: games yeah, so yeah. when we have guests on and when Melissa says goodbye to the guest and she's quite emphatic about her goodbyes, the unwritten law, or maybe it's written somewhere that I'm just not aware of is do not ask that person another question. Do not bring back the guest and i will tell you i'm not a rule follower but that is a rule that i have followed from day one so i know who's done that a number of times i'm not going to cast blame here but i think if you watch fast money often enough you know and that definitely twerks Mel in a big way, which by the way, I think is sort of funny.
1: Yeah, just, you know, I've never done it too. And just how so how it goes is you have the three, four minute conversation, the whole desk plays. And then Mel says, well, thanks. I hope you come back. And then you know, she'll go like, say Tim and I'm just using Tim as an example, but I'm not saying that he does this. And then Tim will say, you know, I wanted to ask such and such, you know, this and that. And the person's literally still there. The camera's not on him. So that's when Mel gives a big old fashioned eye roll over towards Guy's way. I've seen it before it's kind of pierced my skin on the way over to guy
0: their soul piercing stares that you never (laughs) it's sort of what's that in myth in greek mythology medusa you don't want to look in the eyes of medusa lest you be turned to stone which by the way is a great elo song well so far i have not been turned to stone here's a question for you mel i dig this one by the way what percentage of guys references do you get Verse, wonder what the hell is he talking about?
3: I think I get fifteen percent. You get one five percent, so fifteen
0: out of every hundred you get, and the other eighty five are just sort of.
3: I ask you what you're talking about because I feel like if I don't know, there's a chance that most, uh, you know, a lot of other people are in my shoes.
0: Is it frustrating that at times you know that I'm just talking about an audience of like eight people, and it doesn't bother me at all?
3: No, I accept it. I mean, why fight what you can't change? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's so true. At this point, I'm probably only getting worse. Now, this is, part of that question was, and I think I know the answer to this. Do you miss being in the studio with you know the four of us, whatever those four are, every night?
3: One hundred percent. It's just not the same. We were talking before about the chemistry of the show and how it's all of us interacting, and it's very difficult to inter I mean, imagine it's basically like having a Zoom conversation for an hour every night. It's just not the same. It's just not the same, and I can't believe it's gone on this long. But I do have to say that if it were not for the camaraderie and the chemistry that we had developed over time prior to the pandemic, I don't know if the show could have been even a glimmer um, of its old self.
1: All right, Mel, here's one, and it's about me, and I'd love to hear your answer on this. Is, is How
3: much do I love Dan Nathan? No,
1: it's very simple. It's like, why is Dan so salty?
3: Why does the sun rise? <laughs>
1: All right, we can just leave it at that. So
0: one of the questions we just got, there are a lot of games we play on CNBC's Fast Money. I I love them all. And I've actually coined a few of them, by the way. I'll just have the audience know. But Would You Rather is sort of up there in the Pantheon or the Parthenon of all the games. Is there a certain game that you like more than others that we play? Like when you look at the rundown and you see we're going to play that game tonight, do you get excited?
3: I get excited for all games. I do like trade it or fade it. And would you rather, while it is a game, it is not a planned game, and oftentimes it is a spontaneous one that I invoke whenever I want.
0: This sort of goes under the goodbye the guest. This sort of gets you, but you have no control over this at this point. There are certain people that self-would you rather. Now, I know Karen has free reign to do whatever the hell she (laughs) wants. Understandably so. She's earned that. But there are times when people go down a route on their own. How um, frustrating is that as a host?
3: It's really annoying to me when I ask a specific question, like I'll say, Hey, Dan, how about Lululemon or Nike? And you'll say... Oh, I like, you know, Peloton. I'm totally, that's not what you would say, but that <laughs> you just go off the board and and you say something that it's not meant to be. Why can't you just answer the damn question?
1: <laughs> I do do that. I learned this trick a long time ago and I can't remember who taught me this, but TV to guy and me was very foreign. This was your business, Mel, but like someone told me, "Oh, answer the question that you want to answer sometimes." <laughs> and and that's a that's what I do in that game. So, yeah, thank you for bringing that up.
0: Mal, look, it's been a joy having you on. Just sort of in the last couple minutes, what has Fast Money meant to you as not only as a human being, but just professionally? I mean, all the shows you've anchored over the years are wonderful shows, but I think this show has been transcended for your career in a lot of different ways. Can you speak to that?
3: I feel like Fast Money is part of my DNA now. That's how integral it is to me and my professional life. I think that my identity is very closely tied to Fast Money. I can't imagine life without it. I think a lot of the other projects that I've done throughout the years, documentaries, Fast Money has always sort of been there and has helped me along with those projects as well. It's sort of like, uh, I don't want to say husband because my husband might listen to this, but (laughs) it's that important. It's that important. You guys have been that important in my life.
0: It's a warm blanket on a cold February night. And each night is a cold February night. And it's been that way. Listen, listen. There is no Fast Money without Melissa Lee, and we've made it 15 years. I'd love to be able to say we're going to make it another 15, but regardless, I don't think anybody could have foreseen the run we've had, and it falls squarely on your, not broad shoulders physically, but broad shoulders metaphorically.
3: It has been an honor to be at the helm, and thank you guys
0: for making it all happen. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.